Amen. You can be seated this morning. It's great to have you here this morning as we continue in this, ser- uh, this sermon series called Building Better Relationships. And so this morning, we want to continue and we want to talk about marriage, the marriage relationship this morning. And so we're going to focus on that. Now, I know that there are people in this service, a lot of you right up front, that are not married yet, or you have been married before, you've gone through a divorce, you have gone through the death of a spouse. There are many of you who who are not married this morning. So you may ask the question, okay, why do we do a message about marriage? Well, I am so thankful, number one, that you're here, but number two, that Jason was just really sensitive to God's Spirit and leading him to, to lead the worship that he did. Because we're going to take a little bit different tack on marriage this morning. Because we want to talk about marriage is as a reflector of God's character. It's a reflector of God's character. And this morning, I've brought a mirror. I want, to, I want you guys to know what it's like to have these lights on you this morning. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that you experience that, the, uh, the light show that we have this morning, that you experience that. Because I have this mirror. I'm going to be very careful because some of you are superstitious, and I might drop the mirror, and then you wouldn't like that. I know. But, but as we have this mirror, this mirror is a reflector. It reflects this light into your eyes, right? Well, what I am talking about today is that marriage is a reflector of God's character literally to the world that we have. It is an example of what God has to show us and what He desires for us to share with this community. God has placed Eagles View Church right here in the Metroplex, in this northwest section of the Metroplex, in Saginaw, near the lake community of Eagle Mountain Lake. God has placed us here, and He's put our marriages, for those of us who are married today, He has placed our marriages here to be a reflector of His character. Now, I want you to understand, if you're not married today, you are whole and complete. So many times we talk about marriage, especially when you go to weddings, and they talk about how marriage completes you. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Jesus Christ completes you. Okay? He is the only one who completes you. My relationship with Jennifer does not complete me. It makes me a whole lot better than I would be by myself. But it does not complete me. Jesus Christ completes me. It's my relationship with Him that completes me. So we're taking a little bit different, little bit different tack on marriage this morning because we could talk about all the practical elements of marriage, and we're going to do some of that towards the end of this message. But really, that's the reason why we do this Indivisible Marriage Conference. As Bart and I talked about and as we got together with our staff, as we planned out our year, we said at the very beginning of the year, we want to invest time, effort, and resources into strengthening the marriages of our church. Why? Because we want to be a reflection of God's character to this community. Also because we know that this year has been tough on many marriages in our church. It's been tough on many marriages in our community. But we want to share this message and we want to do this conference this next Saturday from 9 to 4. And we want to invite you to attend and to be a part of it. We in no way want to spiritually manipulate you or guilt you into being a part of this. But we want you to know that this church, this local body of Christ desires to invest in your relationship. We want to do so in our marriage series. We want to do so in our relationships. We want to do so through this conference. But so we want to talk about marriages this morning. As we talk about marriages, one thing I want to share with you is 
I am not the perfect husband. I know the gasps around the crowd go, go around and go about because you think I know that I am the perfect husband. Well, I am not. And matter of fact, later to be released this year, Bart and I are writing a book together. We'll do a book signing here at EVC. And it's called The 1001 Things That You Should Never, Ever, Ever Say to Your Spouse. Because I am telling you, the two of us could write a book, including some chapters from some of you, I'm sure, of things that you should never, ever say to your spouse. So the first thing I want to share with you about marriage is, I am not the perfect husband or the perfect father. No amens from this section right down here. But you know what? We are very open and honest with how we live our lives as your pastors. To tell you that we are not perfect, but here's what we know. God has called us to a higher uh, responsibility. And we, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we want you to feel free to be imitators of us because we seek to be imitators of Christ. We are not the perfect representation of of Jesus Christ. But we want to die to ourselves and allow Him to live out through us. And that means through our marriages as well. We want our marriages to be reflections of you of what healthy marriages can be. That we don't have it all together, but we want to live our lives in front of you and with you so that you see that this can be a healthy reflection of God's character. Now, that calls us to a higher standard, but we know that. And we humbly submit to that, knowing that we're not perfect. So I want to share with you a few things and ways that I know that I am not a perfect husband. It came about this week that, hang on, got to clear that throat because it's coming. This week, Jennifer has had strep. Now, she is sitting in the congregation. She is not contagious today. But um, earlier this week, she had strep throat. Well, it brought back to me, she was really sick. And matter of fact, as, as we were talking through this, I, I leaned over her just the other night and I said, babe, you've got to get better because I'm going to have to hire somebody else to do more laundry because I can't seem to keep up with the clothing that three of us are wearing because you're not changing clothes necessarily because you've been sick for the last day and a half. So it's just Jennifer or it's just Kara and Allison and me that are creating all this laundry to do. So, babe, you've got to get better. So it reminded me of a time, the last time that she had strep throat was, was several years ago And it did about what it did this time, really put her down for the count. And I remember she was getting sick as I was getting ready to go to our life group. And I was getting ready to go and lead this particular life group. And one of my favorite things in life groups is snack time. I'm going to be honest with you. That's one of my favorite things about going to groups and meeting in people's homes is having that snack time. And so she called me and said, Randy, you need to take me to the ER. My throat is swelling shut. Okay, husbands, just so you know, now's the time to write down notes, okay? Not to say. What you should never, ever say is, but honey, it's not snack time yet, okay? Because that's what I said. I said, could, we, could it wait till after snack that I could come and, okay, I see women shaking their heads. <coughs> you can see that that is not something that you would say. Well, it gets better because, because I actually did leave snack totally self-sacrificial, as I might add. Totally, I left snack there and, uh, at, at Life Group and, and went and picked up Jennifer, took her to the ER. But keep in mind, I was hungry. I'm hungry. I'm a big guy, okay? Take lots of food. So, so she's in the ER, and they hang an IV to give her fluids and all these other things. And you know, an IV drip takes what? It takes time to do, you know? She's not feeling like talking. She has strep throat, right? IV's hanging. I'm thinking, got time here. I said, babe, you know, I miss snack, and... There's a subway right down the street. 
So while you're here, literally, I left my wife at the ER and went and got Subway, okay? Husbands, you should never, ever do something that stupid, okay? But I did, okay? I just want you to learn from me that that's something you shouldn't do. Another another particular point in time, I've got literally, I have a thousand and one of these, and I could give, continue giving you these, things that you should never do. Don't follow my example. But it was our first year of marriage. Jennifer had to go through lots of change. I was already at a, serving at a church, and I knew everybody, pretty much everybody. It was a much smaller church at the time, and, and I knew everybody that was there. And she was coming to her first year of marriage. She was teaching for the first time. She was living with a hooligan, me, for the first time, okay? She had lots of change. Now, I'm the extrovert person in our relationship. She's kind of the introvert person. I need lots of relationships. She doesn't need that many. I go into a crowd and get energy from the crowd, and she feels like she's been drained of all energy when she goes someplace like that. So we were going to an event that night, and I said, Babe, you know, this first year of marriage, husbands, this is the time to take notes, okay? First year of marriage, and I'm thinking, you know, I really want you to meet people. So don't be in my shadow when we go to this event, but go out and meet people. Oh, Okay, first service that got some, oh, oh. Don't ever say, don't be in my shadow. Because she was not only not in my shadow, she did not even, I didn't see her for about two weeks when, when that whole thing came about. So I'm telling you, don't do always as I would do. But you see, God desires for marriage to be a reflector of his image to the greater community. To the community of the body of Christ, but to the community of others. And the reason I want to share this message with you this morning is because marriage is greatly being maligned in our society. Let me bring you a brilliant example of this. This is from last Sunday's paper in the financial section. I don't often read the financial section, uh, mind you, but I happen to pick this up and see this. I read the paper like many of you probably do. I just kind of glance at headlines and see if there's anything that really interests me. And because I was going to be speaking on this this week, I thought it would. So listen to this. Marriage has financial upsides, okay? Just in case you wanted to know, I want you to know this morning marriage has financial upsides. Here's what this article says. Nearly 4 in 10 Americans in a recent Pew Research Center survey. I always wondered if Pew Research Center had something to do with church. It does not, okay? Just want you to know. This survey said marriage is going the way of paper maps, VCRs, landline phones, and handwritten thank you notes, okay? None of those things are doing really well right now in our particular culture and society, but it goes on further. But even if the institution becomes passe, it is still the best financial route for many. While public policy and employer benefits are gradually changing the reflect of evolving of the evolving definition of family, they still often give a financial edge to married couples. What our society has brought marriage to is, guess what, guys? It has a financial upside. So many people now are choosing that instead of getting married, they decided that they would go ahead and just live together for a while. Because, hey, by the way, I would go and take a car on a test drive, so shouldn't I live with someone before I'm married? You see, our culture has a way of bringing this thing down, even to the definition of changing what a marriage actually is in many states, including perhaps this one. 
So as we look at this this morning, what I want us to understand is that marriage has not changed in God's eyes. It is still a reflection of His character. And as we look at this and we look at Scripture this morning, I want us to understand that God's view of marriage hasn't changed. And His desire for us is that we would view our marriages as places where God not only wants to refine our character, but He wants, it to, put, he wants to put His character on display before others. But I know that many of you have gone through difficult relationships. You have gone through and you've experienced divorce. And I know you're here this morning. And what my message is to you this morning is that God desires for you to be whole in and of who you are as an individual. And that those who are married this morning or who are going to be married, that God wants your marriage, just like that of a single person, God wants your married life as one flesh to be a reflector of His image to a broken world. You see, when I got married and we had our two daughters, I put a security system in my house. And that security system was not to protect anything that I thought was valuable other than the lives of those three women in my life. I put a security system around what I thought was most, um, was most financially uh, important and what was most important to me as a husband and as a father. And what God does is He puts a security system around the marriage relationship because He desires for it to be an image of what He desires in our lives as believers. So the passage that I want to share with you this morning is this. It comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. So I want us to look at this and to look at what God sees and how God views this marriage relationship. It says this. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he quickly moves to this. This is a mystery and is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a direct quote of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. My first point this morning is this. Marriage is a living example of God's relationship with us. Marriage is the example that Jesus chooses to use, that Paul in this instance chooses to use to describe his relationship with you and I as believers. Paul moves very quickly and he says, but I want you to understand that this mystery is profound, this idea of the sexual union of a man and wife and that they become one flesh. This is a picture of Christ and His church. God wants us to know that the marriage institution is alive and well today because He is not going to allow it to be destroyed. It's been attempted to be destroyed many times throughout the society and individuals of human, uh, humankind throughout history. But it is not going to be destroyed because Jesus understands that this marriage is a living example of God's relationship with us. He desires for us to see this view of one flesh of being united at one time, at one day, we are united with Christ. And there will be no difference between Christ and between us. We will literally be one. In Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, Jesus quotes, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He quotes the same passage 
from Genesis 2. Therefore, if a man shall leave his father and mother and shall unite with his wife, they two shall be one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The reason that Jesus points to this, the reason that John in John chapter 3 points that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, the reason that John in the book of Revelation talks about that there is going to be a marriage feast and that the bride is going to present herself as beautifully adorned in the purity of Jesus Christ and that Jesus is going to be the bridegroom and they're going to be united and that you will not be able to tell the two from one because they will be one united together. Jesus and the church. Every time I do a wedding, I bring the couple together. And as they are brought down the aisle by the father of the bride, typically, and they're standing there, the three of them, I will say to the groom, you today represent Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, who has given his very life for his bride, the church. You see, marriage is the most beautiful description that Jesus described to us to say, this is what my relationship with you is like. And I'll tell that husband-to-be, don't get the big head, because this means that it will cost you your life. You will have to lay down, as Bart has been sharing with us over the last couple of weeks, we'll have to lay down our pride in our relationships, and our human friendships and relationships. We have to lay down our pride if we're going to love as God has called us to love. And I'll turn to that bride. And I'll say, you represent the church, the bride of Christ, who has beautifully adorned herself in this wedding dress. But literally, for the church, we stand not in our own purity. We stand in the purity of Jesus Christ. And although you and I both know that as we are the bride of Christ, His church, we still struggle in this body, don't we? We still struggle with our own selfishness, with our own sin. And God will one day remove that. And on that marriage feast day of the Lamb, when we all stand before God, you see, every one of us will give an account. And we won't stand in our own righteousness, thank God. We will stand in the righteousness of Christ, being put on all His righteousness put upon us. You see, marriage is the prime example that Jesus gives us to understand this relationship that He has with us. What is the end result of this? The end result of this is that our purpose as husbands and wives, our purpose as individuals is one thing, to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. Now think about this for just a second. Everything that we do is to bring glory to God. The good things that we go through, the difficult things that we go through, are to bring glory to God. But if that is true, then so many of us can often think, because we think from a human temporal, on this side of heaven standpoint, we think, does that make God some being that is just this huge human sponge, or huge, huge God-like sponge of glory? That seems to make him less than what he is. Well, let me describe it to you this way. God made everything that we see and everything that we do not see. He is the author and creator of it all. If God chose to give his glory to us that we might glorify ourselves and be prideful of who we are, that we might bring glory to ourselves, then God would be practicing in what is called idolatry. Because God created us, God cannot, by His very nature, cannot give glory to anything else other than Himself. 
if he did give glory to anything he created, then that is idolatry. Because it's, bring, it's giving glory to something that cannot be receiving that same glory. God must glorify himself. And your life and my life and our marriages are designed to bring glory back to God. So, first thing is this. Our marriage is to be a living example of God's relationship with us. The second thing is this. Marriage is to be a tool through which he uncovers his character in us. Marriage is the tool that he uses, that God utilizes, that he might reveal his character in us. Imagine a man who walks up on another man who is sculpting out of stone, marble, a horse. And he asks this man, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm, I'm sculpting a horse. He goes, I don't even understand you, you people who are artists that are creative like that. How do you actually do that? He said, it's very simple. You simply remove from the block of stone everything that doesn't look like a horse. And what you're left with is the sculpture of a horse. What God desires in you and I is that everything else is chipped away out of our lives, that his character might be revealed. And marriage is one of the primary tools that he uses to chip away those rough edges of our lives that he might be revealed in us and that his character might be revealed. There are three cycles that I want to share with you as a part of this point that marriage is this tool where God continues to do this. One author actually says that marriage is the laboratory through which God's character is revealed in us. So I want us to look at marriage in a little bit different way with that, with these three cycles. The first cycle is what I call the love and respect cycle. A man wrote a book, named his name is Emerson Egerich. That's a really tough thing to say and to write down. But Emerson Egerich wrote a book. The book is called Love and Respect. And he, comes, he brings this whole process from Ephesians 5.33, which says this, However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there's this cycle, and there's going to be three of these that I give to you, but the first one is the love and respect cycle. What I mean by this is that primarily men and different are, or men and, men and women are very different. Did you guys know that? It, it is amazing. It is very, very true that men and women are very different. They not only look different, they're not anatomically just different, they act very different. They think very different. I have asked Jennifer on many occasions, why in the world do you think God made us so different? I think it is partly a sense of humor that God does this and that he sees us as so different. But we have this love and respect cycle. What Emerson Egerich talks about, and he brings it from this very passage that Paul uses, is that men typically in our lives, if you look on the top half of the circle, put love, and on the bottom half of the circle, put respect. When men say that they desire to be loved, what men typically are saying is, I long to be respected. And I really resonate with that as a father. I desire respect from my daughters, respect from Jennifer. That doesn't mean that they always listen to what I say. Matter of fact, they typically make fun of me, and they all gang up on me, okay? The three women, and I have two female dogs too, okay? There's no other testosterone in my home except what I provide, and that's not usually that much. So, so here's the thing. It is this love and respect. I long to be respected, to simply be honored for who I am as a protector. My middle name is Scott, and it literally means protector. 
I have taken that to the extreme in my family. That means that I typically am a helicopter parent. You know what that is? Someone who hovers around, okay? I always was there. You know, when my daughters were learning to ride bikes, I was running along behind. I was always hovering around to the point that when Allison was born, uh, we were a little concerned with her birth, just that everything that she was doing okay. And matter of fact, the nurses asked Jennifer one time, is your husband gone home? She said, yes, yeah, he's just gone for a few minutes. He'll be back. They said, oh, no. We're glad he's gone. He has worn out the carpet in between here and where the nursery is because I was concerned. I'm kind of that, that helicopter parent. But I long to be respected. Men love to create. We love to provide for our families. We get a lot of our identity from our ability to be able to provide. That's where joblessness is such a difficult thing sometimes for men to experience because for so long we've been the provider and we love the respect that that gives us. So when you say to men, I want to love you, most of us hear that you want to respect who I am. When women hear the word love, it tends, tends to mean the word security. They long to be cared for, to make sure that everything in their life is safe, to be provided for. So love and respect take on these two different aspects of what love really means to men and women. And the fact that love sounds different and it means different things to us can create a real tragic, vicious cycle. Because here's what happens. Men cannot give unconditional love until they feel respected. Women cannot give respect until they feel unconditionally loved. And so the tussle begins. Because we're in this vicious cycle that we can't give one unless we have the other. And so it has to begin somewhere. And men, that's where I'm calling us to. Men, it begins with us. It's time for us in the church and to understand that it's time for us to man up. This cycle has to begin somewhere. And I believe God places the responsibility on Christian men to love their wives unconditionally first because the cycle must begin somewhere. And that by that, the cycle can begin to be turned in its proper way. So the love-respect cycle is one way through which this marriage is a tool to reveal God's character, to chip away the rough edges in our life. A second cycle is the what I call the life and death cycle or the death to life cycle. Luke 9.23 talks about this where Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Again, typically this is always a passage that I will insert into a marriage relationship as we're doing a marriage ceremony. Why? Because this call to Jesus that we might be disciples for a Christian couple is a call to move from death to life. That what I am saying is, as Bart has said about other relationships, it is true very much inside marriage that we must die to our own needs in order to live to our spouse's needs. I will typically say to a couple, look, our culture does not know very much about denying ourselves. But when we deny ourselves, it means that life is given. When we choose to die to our way, there can be life in our couple relationship. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot give birth to the stalk of wheat, which creates multiple, multiple more seeds than what the one seed could create. The same is true inside of a marriage. 
this life and death cycle is here and present inside of a marriage. We cannot be all that God wants us to be unless we die to who we are and allow Christ to live and love our spouse as He has called us to. This is also demonstrated by what I call the put-off and put-on language. You'll see it in Ephesians. You'll see it in uh, Colossians. It is the put-off and put-on language. We'll actually use a passage from Colossians a little bit later in the message. But it's the put-off, put-on language. It's you must put off the deeds of the flesh and put on the, the fruit of God's Spirit into your life. Put off the things and desires that your flesh wants to do. Because, guys, this is a battle. I am not lying to you. I know that marriage and I know that relationships are difficult. But it calls us constantly to be revealing the character of God within us when we put off our way and put on His. Now, we're not going to do this perfectly. And I've already given you plenty of examples, and I could give you plenty more and could ask for personal testimonies within the church today of ways that I do this and the reasons that I struggle with this. But I am telling you, it is the put off and put on. It is the life and death cycle that we are created in a new way, transformed to be who God wants us to be. In my marriage, I can tell you, because Jennifer is a part of my life, I am much more organized today than I would ever be if it were not for her. Okay? I am not allowed to have, no, it's not I'm not allowed to have, but I do not have an office here at EVC. Why? Because it would be a mess if I did. I have an office at home because Jennifer makes me clean it up there. But I'm telling you, some of you don't like me now. Just think 18 years ago. I was a much worse of a person when I did not have Jennifer in my life because she has revealed God's character more and more and refined that character to me. She's told me, if I die, she's not getting remarried. So I'm holding you to that, babe. And it's not because there's not anybody else. It's that because she doesn't want to have to work as hard as she's had to work on me with somebody else. All right? So the death and life cycle. I want you to write these questions down to ask yourself in this. What of my own way do I need to die to in order that I might live through my marriage relationship? Or if you're single today, how do I need to choose to die today to something in my heart and life that I might need to, that my relationships with others might flourish and be better? What do I need to die to today? How would Christ, another question, how would Christ display His love to my spouse or to others today through me? How does Christ want to be on display in my heart and life? If that's going to take place, it means the death of sometimes the way that we desire to live. A third cycle is called the authority and submission cycle. Now, it's one that I think is most misunderstood in the church and in the world today. When the church, especially when the world looks at Paul, when it looks at especially Ephesians, it sees this issue of authority and submission, especially in dealing with wives and husbands. And I think it gets a horrible rap because it is not uh, understood clearly to what it actually says. The authority submission cycle. Ephesians 5, 21 and 22 speaks of this. It says... First of all, submitting to one another. Now, typically, many of, of our translations will begin with a new chapter they'll be, or with a new paragraph in chapter 20 or verse 22. But that's not what this does. It actually begins in chapter or verse 21, and it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, 
then wives submit to your own husbands. Actually, there is no verb within verse 23. It actually should read like this. Submitting to one another, husbands and wives, out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. The reason this is misunderstood is because this idea of authority and submission is something that every single one of us deal with. If you have a job, you deal with authority and submission in submitting to the authority of your boss. If you are part of a governmental society, as we are, April 15th, we will come to a decision as to whether we are going to vote with our taxes as to whether we're going to be in line with the authority. As you drive out today, you will find speed limit signs, and you make a choice as to whether you will live within that authority. We all deal with authority and submission. But as God gives this illustration, and as we see this is one of the ways in which character is built in us through marriage, it is understood that this is an issue of flow. Okay? Let me describe this. If there's a waterfall here today, and I have an empty bucket, I want to fill up the bucket, and so I'm going to hold the bucket outside of the waterfall in order for it to be filled. Is that true? No, okay? This is audience participation time to make sure you're awake, okay? Here's a waterfall. Here's a bucket, and I want to fill up the bucket. Do I leave the bucket over here outside the waterfall? No. I must put it within the flow of where the water is if the bucket is to be full. Let me illustrate this a different way. Last week, my umbrella was destroyed, so I went to Sam's and bought a new one just for this illustration so that I could do this. So last week in the wind, it broke. The shaft broke right in the middle. So I know some of you really have a problem with this. I've already used a mirror. I did not break it, and now I'm opening an umbrella within the house of God. Okay. There. Okay. The gasp of everyone. There are no black cats that are going to cross the stage today, so we're all okay. But here's the issue of flow of how this works. This is the umbrella of authority, okay? This is God's authority in our life. And the idea is, as long as we stay underneath the flow of God's authority, we are protected, okay? That God's love protects us. Does that mean nothing bad happens to us here? No. It just means that God is absolutely in control of all things that happen within the flow of His authority. When we walk outside of God's authority, we are now no longer under the flow of His protection in this. And in the way of a of a uh, institution like government, if God's authority is above that government and we're in line with that, then we stay protected under that. In the, the example of a family, God has placed the husband, wife, and then children because it is a flow of God's authority. Now, here's what happens. If the husband moves himself out here, what's more important for us to do? Should the wives stay underneath God's authority or move with the husband? You need to go with the higher authority. God's protection is here. The husband's protection may be out there, but it is not where it is for you. I would say the same thing if a child, one of our students were were saying this morning that their mom and dad had told them to move outside the authority of God and to steal something for them. I would say, what do you do? You go with a higher authority. You choose to disobey parents at that point and stay within the flow of God's authority because it's a flow of protection. Let me describe it to you a different way. Let's say I've driven in the hills of Arkansas, and so these little signs really make a difference. When a sign says there's a curve up ahead and it's 25 miles per hour, I know that I can make a choice and go 70 mi- 75 miles an hour and try to make that turn. 
but I will face the consequences of what the authority told me to do in the life of the prodigal son. The prodigal son said that he was going to take what was his father's inheritance and he would go and do with it what he wanted to. He chose to move outside of the flow of God's authority and then the consequences were that he was a disheveled man and he moved back underneath the authority of God. When this authority submission cycle is going on, what God is saying to us is this cycle is there for your protection. It is a flow of God's authority. It's not headship as I'm over you and you have to do what I say. Remember, this is in the context of mutual submission. Husbands and wives mutually submitting. I've told you before that for me, working with finances is a difficult thing. I do not like it. I would rather change banks before balancing my checkbook, okay? But thankfully, Jennifer is very gifted. She comes from a long line of financial wizards of her father and then her grandfather. And so she sees that. She is much better at that than me. We mutually submit. I submit to her giftings and abilities in that area of our marriage towards organization towards all these other things that I've mentioned. Matter of fact, I'm not sure what I actually put into this marriage, but (laughs) nevertheless, it is this opportunity of authority submission, life and death, love and respect, these cycles that God uses these tools to refine our character, to remove the parts of us that don't look like Him. Marriage is one of those places that God, and one of those relationships that God uses to do that. Point number three, marriage is a place where God displays His power. I already established today what our culture thinks about marriage, right? Our culture views marriage as a weak state of matrimony. All right? So keeping that in mind, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 and 28 says, But God chooses what is foolish in the world's eyes to shame what is wise. God chose what is weak in the world, Marriage views marriage, or the world views marriage as weak. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, in our case, marriage, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Marriage is a place where God displays His power. The power of oneness. This talks about one flesh, but it is more than just a sexual relationship. It is literally oneness where you become more and more like each other. This is displayed in many of our marriages as you think about you and your spouse. Typically, we always hear that opposites attract, all right? Well, that was very, very true in Jennifer and my relationship and the fact that we actually went to a marriage conference and we were with a bunch of our friends and they placed us in these lines of how far apart you could be on these scales. And they would place us how we all related to this assessment that we were given. It's the same assessment that I give couples when I do uh, premarital counseling now. So they put us in a line. Who would be the furthest and who would be the furthest in one line and who would be the furthest in the other line? And they said this. If you are 20 points removed from each other, then your marriage is a testimony of God's grace. Okay? Jennifer and I were 40 points removed in every category. Every one. Our marriage today, in this example of oneness, is a testimony of God's power to put us together. You know, 
we scored a zero in recreational companionship, okay? There's only been like two or three couples that I've ever given this to that scored a zero in any category. We scored a zero in recreational companionship, okay? What that basically meant is we totally like doing different things. But over 18 years of marriage, I now like to do what Jennifer likes to do. That's, that's basically <laughs> what, what it means. But no, now what it means is we've discovered a great place, okay? The great place is called the beach, because Jennifer has this abnormal fear shared by other people in the room that I won't mention, Bart Howell, of sharks, okay? So Jennifer reads her book. Her view of recreational companionship is reading a book while I love and have fallen in love with snorkeling, okay? Corey, you're back there. You've got to teach me how to scuba dive. I know I've told you I was going to do that, but, but I love to snorkel. So now we have great recreational companionship because she can sit on one side of the water on the beach, And I can swim with Jaws and watch him. You know, it's really a great thing. You see, God, over time, this whole idea of oneness, that is a miracle of marriage. The whole idea of forgiveness, that she could know my deepest issues and my deepest um, sin and my deepest struggle and choose to love me anyway, and I could do the same for her. That's a miracle. The power of God is displayed in our marriage. The birth of children. I can't, I can't tell you the, the joy that our two daughters bring to our lives and the whole idea of this is a miracle that God displays His power in marriage. So it's not just a tool that He uses to refine His character. It's not just the example that He shows us what our relationship is to Him. It is a display of His power. And then the final thing today is marriage is a relationship where God unveils his grace it's a relationship where god unveils his grace for us see jesus christ went to the cross for you and i he totally gave up his life that you and i that we might have life he totally laid down his life in this life and death cycle so that you and i might have a relationship with god he chose to leave heaven And to come here and to come to earth and to die for us that we might experience the fullness of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he displays this in our marriages. He displays this grace. Colossians 3 verses 12 through 15 says, this is that put off, put on cycle that I talked about. He's already talked about the put off the deeds of the flesh. And he says then in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, this is a great list. This would be one of those lists that goes with 1 Corinthians 13, that in your relationship with your daughters, with your sons, with your husbands, with your wives, with your employers, put this up in places that you will notice them and say this is the goal, that you would have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, okay? Now, in a marriage, that is a daily, sometimes minute-by-minute proposition, right? That we might have a complaint against one another. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when, okay? Let's see which we're having a contest today to see what married couple has an argument before they leave the church today, okay? So raise your hand if you want to win. Okay, now, that you might with 
Forgive one another as the what? As the Lord has forgiven you. You see, marriage is a relationship where God unveils His grace. He says, I have given you grace. You found grace at the cross. You found grace enough that you might have salvation in me. With this same grace, forgive one another and unveil it that it might be on display for the world to see. That they might see your grace to one another and be led toward me so also you must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together. Just keep that image, that mental image, that love which binds everything else together. Although your, your world may be seeing, seeming like it's flying apart at the seams, the love of God binds you together, together in perfect harmony. Harmony is a great word because it's a musical term. Because people can be singing different notes and it all sounds great together because it's harmony. Men and women are different. Husbands and wives are different. But this is an unveiling of God's grace because He brings it together and says, this is the harmony of love that I have for you. And He says, and be thankful to which you were called in one body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Final thing this morning that I want to give you is just, these are some practical things for you. Now, as I mentioned earlier, folks, we're doing the Indivisible Marriage Conference. It is next Saturday from 9 till 4. Do you need an investment in your marriage? I do. Bart and Hope going to be there. Jennifer and I are going to be there. Why? Because we want to invest in our marriages. We don't have it all together. We still have lots of stuff to learn. We do this at the beginning of this year that you might have an opportunity to invest in your relationship. Nine to four. What a great investment. There are some practical things that will be dealt with in that marriage conference that I knew I could not cover all of them, but there are five things I just want to give you as takeaways that you can put together in your life. First of all is this. Relationship maintenance is hard work. Relationship maintenance is hard work. You'd better expect it to need your full attention. That's the reason we provide a thing like this upcoming weekend. I remember growing up, my, my mother and father had an acre and a half garden. Okay, If you go to my house today, you will not find an acre and a half garden. You will not find an acre garden any time in my life at my home. Why? Because I got to experience the hard work that it was like to go and cultivate okra and get itchy stuff all over your arms. I mean, I hated it. Okay? To walk through the corn and the corn silt would just come down on the back of your neck. I mean, there were things, but man, I loved eating those vegetables. Vegetable gardens and big gardens like that are hard work. Why do you think your relationships wouldn't be? It's going to be tough. You're going to have to die to some of the things that you want. You're going to have to die to some of the things that you think you need and that you you have a right to have. It's hard work. You'd better expect, and I'd better expect, that relationship maintenance is difficult. It's not easy. Number two, focus on your own responsibilities rather than someone else's. It's easy to say this is what I think they ought to do, okay? And husbands, I unapologetically said, 
It's time to man up, and it starts with us. The love-respect cycle, I believe, God-given responsibility begins with us. The cycle has to stop and start somewhere, and I believe that is firmly placed within men. That's one of the reasons why I believe that we've got to continually invest in men. Coach Avanchan, uh, his deal, it's in the, uh, in the bulletin. He's going to begin his leadership deal. We're beginning some, some opportunities for men on Saturdays to come together and pray and to hold each other accountable. Why do we do that? Because I think when you go after men, you reach whole families. When you go after ladies, you reach typically ladies and children. When you go after children, you typically reach children. But when you go after men, you typically will reach whole families. We are unapologetically going to go and strive after men. Why? Because we know that when we do that, we understand that we're talking about what we just said. And that is we've got to focus on us first. It starts, I believe, with men. But it also gravitates towards every one of us to focus on our responsibilities, not that of our spouse. Number three. Be ruthless in resisting anything that will draw your affections away from one another. Be ruthless. When that old flame who doesn't have a new name shows up on Facebook, it means that you don't go there. All right? To understand that you ruthlessly resist anything that would draw your affections away from each other. Men, let's be honest, for a lot of us, it is our jobs. Some others may have affairs in other places, but our job has become our affair. It's the thing that we hold to, the thing that we get a lot of respect from. And so we pour more and more and more and more of our lives there. Maybe, ladies, you do the same things. But we must ruthlessly resist anything that draws our affections away from one another. Remember what Joseph did when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. He ran. He ran to the extent that he left his robe in her hand. He ran naked so that there was no way that he had a, a reason to, to go back and to hold up his own character. But he ran and fled because he knew that he must leave that and ruthlessly protect his relationship with his Heavenly Father. We must do the same in our relationships with each other. Number four. Watch that you do not allow your children to be the glue that holds you together or the wedge that separates you. I see so many families coming to me now that are dealing with empty nest syndrome. They've invested 20 years into the life of their kids. Well, that's what we should do. We should invest into the lives of our kids, but not to the exclusion of each other. We've got to keep that love and that romance and that maintenance of relationship alive so that when our kids are gone and live in their lives, that we have a relationship. So don't allow your children to be the glue that holds you together or the wedge that separates you, especially families. I know that blended families, that it is hard because it is hard to love someone else's child as much as you love your own. I know that that is seems impossible, but again, that is a beautiful example of this point, that God unveils His grace in relationship, even when it seems impossible to others. And the last thing is this. Be a student of your spouse. You need to go to school, go to the school of your spouse. 
You need to know their needs, know their wants, know their desires. But be a student of your spouse. What does that mean? Some great books available for that. One is The Five Love Languages by a guy named Gary Chapman. Another one is that Love and Respect book that I told you about. But another one is just get away and spend time with your spouse. Don't keep your nose in the book. Say, ask questions like, what do you really want to do with your life? How can I be what you need to allow God's character to be formed in you? Ask those tough questions of what, what do you dream about doing? And how can, we, how can we make our relationship and position that so that you can be a part of that? It's being a student of your spouse. Final quote is from another great book. It's called um, Sanc- uh, Sacred Marriage by a man named Gary Thomas. Sacred Marriage talks about this, this one question. What if marriage was not intended by God to make you happy, but to make you holy? What if marriage was God's way of putting you in a place, in a spot where your character reflected more of what God desired you to be than just for you to be happy? Does that mean there's not happiness in marriage? No but that God's main intention, do not leave today without understanding God's main intention for you. And that's that His character would be formed in you. That we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and transformed, conformed into the image of God's Son. That's what God desires your marriage to be, to make you more holy rather than happy. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Just a second, Jason is going to come and play. And I'm going to ask you to stand in just a second. But right now, I want you to just think about your heart and life right now. Maybe this morning, God would have you come down and just pray with your spouse to renew at the beginning of this year, to renew your commitment to your spouse today. Maybe you need to do that here. Maybe you need to do that at your seat but just to pray over your spouse. Maybe you today, you're, you're single, and you would renew your commitment to Christ today. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus wants you to see that above all things, He desires a relationship with you, and that really marriage is to be a display of that. So maybe you this morning would be that one who is here that, You don't have that relationship. And you would just simply say a prayer like this. It's not magical words that save you. It's the attitude of your heart that says, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need you to come in and be my Savior and Lord so that I can be transformed into your character. I want to pray for us, and then we're just going to stand. And you don't want you to stand and, and... an attitude of prayer. If God leads you just to come and pray with your spouse, if you want to pray right there, I encourage you to do that. Let me pray for us right now. Father, thank you today for your son. Thank Thank you that you have chosen marriage as a beautiful example of how much you love us. And Jesus, I pray for those marriages that need your help right now. 
They're hurting. There are people here today that have gone through struggles. Lord, they need your help. They need your spirit to work in them. God, I pray that you would minister to them right now. I pray for those who need a relationship with you, that you would speak clearly to them and that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me?